Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 272 with my guest Kevin Briggs. Today's episode is brought to you by Calm. Relax with Calm, a mindfulness meditation app that brings clarity and peace of mind into your life. The app offers guided meditations, soothing nature scenes, and ambient sounds to ease your way through the day. Whether you experience anxiety, have trouble sleeping, or just need quality relaxation time, you'll find sessions to help you. Visit calm.com slash mental illness podcast to download the app today for free. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental illness podcast. Make every day a calm day with the Calm app. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. My Twitter handle, if you'd like to follow me, is uh, MentalPod. Uh, our website is MentalPod.com. Uh, all kinds of stuff you can do at our website. You can join the forum. You could just browse it. You can read blogs and guest blogs. You can support the show financially. You can fill out a survey. Uh, maybe we'll read yours on the show. Um, all kinds of things you can do there. So, uh, so go check it out. Uh, let's get to the surveys. Let's get right into it. Let's get right into it so I can avoid thinking about the fact that Herbert has ringworm again. Oh my God, he is. We should just, we should have, you know, like the monorail they have in, in uh, Disneyland or Disney World. We should just have a monorail for Herbert that goes from our house to the vet. <sighs> I, and I'm not exaggerating when I say a quarter, a quarter of the budget that uh, if you take the money that uh, that we bring in to support the show a quarter of that is spent on Herbert's vet bills (laughs) 
this is a struggle in a sentence. That was a pretty dramatic pause there, wasn't it? Just for a second, you guys thought, is Paul okay? I think he may, I think he might have done something rash. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. This is filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself uh, Takeo. And uh, he writes about his depression. Uh, I feel homesick even when I'm laying in my own bed. Wow, that's that's deep. That is a good one. About his anxiety. Every time my phone rings, my stomach drops. God, I get that too. Uh, about his bulimia. I used to make myself throw up in high school and my mom would make exorcist jokes instead of asking if I was okay. Oh, that's heartbreaking. And about experienced sexual sexual bias, um, he writes, he's gay. Uh, everything everywhere was made with straight people in mind, and I feel like I don't belong. And then a snapshot from his life. I've had friends tell me they were having a, quote, straight people only conversation. A pretty small thing, but it hurt more than it should have. I don't think that's a pretty small thing. I think that's a fucking terrible thing to say. Um... This is filled out by a woman. I think we've read her surveys before. She calls herself Awful Lot of Falafel. I like it. Um, about her bulimia. Each binge purge cycle is a bad roller coaster ride. At first, you're excited by the thought of it. As you get on the ride and it begins, you never want it to end. Then at some point, very shortly after it starts, you feel disgusting and want to never ride again. Half an hour later, hunger kicks in and it begins again. Imagine riding roughly five roller coasters a day like this for roughly 14 years. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the toll that that has taken on you mentally and physically. About her anorexia, my body's needs are somehow repulsive. And about her sex addiction, let me fuck it all better. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Kevin Briggs, who is a retired California highway uh, patrolman. And uh, a listener said, you should get this guy on your podcast because he used to uh, work the Golden Gate Bridge and talk, try to talk people who were attempting to jump off of the bridge. And I thought, my God, that I can't imagine what that was like where where do we even begin well thank you for having me i'm so i'm so flattered that you uh drove down from from where you live we're in oakland right now i'm on the i'm on the road we're in my hotel room but i'm so um flattered that uh you drove down here to to do this oh thank you my pleasure really um i can tell you when i started working on the bridge and it's a big deal to me because it affects us so much as officers is I had no training in talking to someone 
over the rail. I had no negotiation training whatsoever. So on my first encounter with someone over that rail, I didn't know what to do. It was, and were you um, positioned there specifically for that purpose, or did you no. happen upon that person? Right. We get a call about that. There'd be a witness, generally, that sees someone go over. And I responded. And, uh, and when it, you say go over, meaning putting themselves in the position to, to jump, or right. they had jumped? No, they put themselves in the position. There's a four-foot rail that goes along the pedestrian rail mm-hmm. along the sidewalk. And if you went over that, if you traversed that rail... There's an I-beam, about 30-some-odd inches, that people generally stand on while they're contemplating whether they want to jump or not. I see. Okay. So you got a call. Right. And I responded down there, and I see this woman over the rail, and I was thinking of what I would do on my way down. But once you get into that position, um, everything goes out the door. You kind of, oh, boy. I wasn't trained for this. I didn't even know how to approach this. So I just walked up. And introduced myself, but I did a little more formally than I than I did before I retired. You said, good evening, madame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of at the point of, what are you doing? You can get hurt, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, as far as talking to people, which has been many, many, many folks I've talked with over the rail, I think when I first started, they had pity on me as well. I never lost a person years and years and years ago. But I think they had some pity on me because they they could see how scared I was. Really, it, it was uh, it's a terrifying thing to see. I didn't want someone to lose their life, and it wasn't as if I was going to get in trouble. But that's a life. I mean, my God, I'm looking at an individual who's having maybe been having a horrible time in their life for years, and they've come here to end it. What can we do to stop this? To prevent this? And it's a heavy burden. So. I realized very quickly that I needed some help on how to handle these calls. So I started talking to some of the senior officers and some of the senior people on the Golden Gate Bridge, and they gave me some good clues. And I started doing some research, um, and it wasn't until way later in my career where I actually got some formal training. And what did you? What are some some key things that you can share with uh, with us that you learned or? Uh, intuitively came up with yourself along the way? I learned that the approach to me is critical. If I had just, mind you, I ride a motorcycle, I rode a motorcycle. If I just rode up on my motorcycle right next to them and stopped and got off and pulled a John Wayne kind of thing, it wouldn't work at all. What I would do is park 50 feet away or so, come up to within 20 feet, something in that range, and ask their permission to walk up and speak with them. That's very empowering for folks. Most of these people, if they were on medication for a mental illness, uh, 99% have stopped, and that's a really big deal. And, you know, I think the majority suffer from depression or bipolar, and they've just been down. This It's not a, a one-time thing that they're having a hard week and they show up at the bridge. These people have been up and down for years. So... When I approach them, I just introduce myself, either as, hi, I'm Kevin, or hi, I'm Kevin with the Highway Patrol. May I or can I come up and speak with you? Sometimes they'll just kind of nod their head a little bit. Other times they don't want me to come up at all. And it takes a little bit of work before they will allow me to come up and talk. They, I will let them know that, hey, I'm not going to grab you. I'm not going to reach for you. I just want to come up and, and talk with you. And I want to hear their story. If I can get them talking... 
then we're we're doing all right generally that seems to be the kind of the linchpin of progress is if you can get them to begin to to open up right everybody has a story and if i can get me get them to tell me their story not that i can solve any of the issues or problems but at least a lot of times it, it gets it off their chest and they feel better and if we could start them just feeling a little better and i can empower them what i try to do also is if they're standing on that cord that's over the pedestrian rail is i try to be below them so they're looking down at me it's very easy for me to stand above them with my arms on the pedestrian rail and look down at them but that doesn't do us any good i want them to be looking down at me it's kind of an officer safety issue but i take that into account did you come up with that yourself or did they train you with that i i that's kind of a, a kevin briggs thing i think if i and i went to negotiator school uh the fbi school and stuff but that's kind of just a Kevin Briggs thing. I want that. I'm thinking if I was over that rail, what's the things that, that would really help me out in coming back over? And I think the, the empathy is huge. You have to have that. That's so funny. On this podcast, I, we often talk about what makes a good therapist. And the thing that everybody says over and over and over again, the the biggest movement they've had in therapy is feeling felt by their therapists feeling that empathy seeing it in their eyes seeing that they care you're exactly right and that's what i focus on when i first walk up to someone uh i'll kind of do a scan on them make sure they don't have any missiles or machine guns or something on that person Mm -hmm. and then i really just look at their face I want to look everything about their face to kind of study that. And I want them to see my face, this old grungy face of mine, just to see that I care. <laughs> How old are you, by the I way? I am 53. And you're retired. I'm retired. Well, you I've bastard. I, you know what? I got to tell you, I haven't worked this hard since I was in the infantry. Really? What are, you, what are you doing? I'm traveling, speaking, preparing for talks. Um, I've been to a lot of places all around the United States, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico. In July, I'll be in Germany. It's I have a lot of things scheduled. Have you written a book yet? There is a book out, yes. And, and what called, is it called? It's called Guardian of the Golden Gate. I am the worst preparer for interviewing guests, maybe in the history of media. <laughs> you have to forgive me. Um, I, I Again, like a, a lot of other guests, I will have to read your book. Of course, after you were a guest, and then I'll kick myself because I'll have more questions. <laughs> that's but, okay. Maybe we could do it over the phone or something. Or, yeah. Um, but that's that's really is, the empathy thing is huge. And a lot of officers aren't really cut out for this. We, we all have our specialized deals. Some some guys want to get into drugs. They do the canine bit. Other ones want to do commercial. They look at big trucks. I kind of fell into this negotiations, and but I enjoyed it. It's It's difficult. And I think my personality type maybe isn't even quite built for this because I take everything personally, and you can't with this. But I think it helps me a little bit in trying to to show how much I care for these folks. But then I take it home with me, and that's where things get bad. How could you not? I mean, uh, have you been diagnosed as having PTSD or secondary PTSD? That and depression. And I take medication for it. Good Um, for you. I can tell you just a very quick summary of my history, and you'll see, boy, this guy's messed up. (laughs) When I was in the Army, right out of high school, I had cancer. 
testicular cancer. So I had three operations. It had actually spread up into my abdomen. Um, went through some months of chemotherapy and then got done with that. And we look at what causes mental illness. So there's one thing. My mother died of cancer when she was just 49 years old. And we, while the family was gathered, she died at home. I closed her eyes. That's a big hit on a young guy, mm-hmm. on anybody. How old were you? I think I was around 27, okay. something like that. I was working at San Quentin at the time. whole other <laughs> story, but <laughs> all these fun jobs. Yeah. And then after that, uh, I was involved in a very nasty motorcycle crash when I was with the Highway Patrol, where another motorcyclist had come around a corner on a, on a rural, windy road and hit me head on. And uh, the closing speed was determined to be about 105 miles an hour. I got the helicopter ride. I had a surgery. I was off work for months. The other car was going 105 or uh, you were going 105? No, our speeds together. Oh, I was speeds going together. about 45 because oh it was God. a 45 zone. And I had some cars ahead of me. I had some behind me. I was just tooling along, minding my own business. When this guy came around the corner, just way too hot. He had on leathers, and he was on one of those motorcycles that can race and all that. Mm-hmm. But uh, high-speed motorcycle, low-speed rider kind of thing. Came around that corner, just missed the car ahead of me. He would have killed him. And he hit me head on. So I got the helicopter flight, and I was off work for a while on that one. Wow. And then um, had heart disease. And when I was, it keeps going. At a certain point, it becomes humorous. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when I was 47, I believe, uh, three stents put in my heart, three operations, six days in the ICU. Now, that that has to be genetic because you are right. a super fit looking guy. Genetic and a gallon of ice cream every day didn't didn't help either. Were course, you really? Is that how you were stuffing down your feelings? Cops and donuts and, you know, that goes. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, being diagnosed uh, with depression. So... I, it's funny is when I present to folks, I have these all on a PowerPoint, these mm-hmm. these different ones. And I go, you know, my little boy, Travis, who's 12 now, he looks at this and he goes, Dad, you're going to be fine the rest of your life. And I go, well, how do you say that? I'll bite. You know, I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out why is he coming up with this? He goes, look, Dad, there's no more room on that slide, which is kind of <laughs> funny. So. <laughs> so were you diagnosed with depression while you were still on the force and working the bridge? Yes. Did that help you in communicating to to people? Did you ever share that with them? I share all the stuff that I just told you. Mm -hmm. I will not talk to someone over the rail or in the parking lot or whatever I'm interviewing them. I will not bring those up because it's not about me. I never want it to be the Kevin Briggs show. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I present to folks, whether it's in the outback of Australia to 15 people or it's 5,000 people in Mexico, I have... I, I want them, they don't need to remember Kevin Briggs. I want them to remember the message and how we can help people. That's very important. But if that individual over that rail says, you don't know what it's like to have cancer or my mom died early and these different things, now we have something in common. And we call that a hook. Commonalities create comfort. And that's something else we can talk about and we can spread that time. The longer I can keep that person talking, generally the better. So... That first encounter, describe that that first time. Young lady and sandy blonde hair, I think. It was quite some time ago, around 1996-ish or so. And uh, she... Excuse me, my my alarm is going off, telling me to uh, wake up from my nap. <laughs> One second. <laughs> Sorry. I was just hoping it wasn't mine. I, oh, I thought I turned it off. 
So when I encountered this woman, when, when I got the call and then showed up, I just kind of walked up there and I was more of of the, the mindset of, well, what are you doing? You can get hurt kind of thing. And I knew, you know, the, the average person, mentally stable or whatever, is not going to go over that rail unless they're they're really daring and they're going to jump off with a parachute or something. But it was obvious this lady had been homeless, a drug user, all these different things that were knocking her down. But I just listened to her. I was very lucky. And, and a lot of times I, I can talk a long, a long time. So I learned quickly, shut up. And um, we try to, to talk very little and ask them open-ended questions so we can't get just a yes or a no. And just listen to their story. We can't fix anything, but I can certainly be there for them. And many, many times, that's all someone is looking for, is somebody to sit there, be quiet, and listen to what's going on with them. Would you say that that could also apply to parenting? (laughs) Very much so. And I'm still working on that one. I have two boys, uh, 15 and 12. Patience and listening. I'm still working on it. How hard is it as a parent when you do that with your kid, but your kid doesn't really want to talk and they're kind of going to that teenage shell? That's got to be incredibly frustrating. It is. It is. I'm thinking, did I do something wrong? Um, because it's uh, it's my ex- ex-wife now, and I live maybe 10 miles away from them. But I see them almost every day. There's, there's no conflicts there. Um, so it's... This team where they tell you when they hit teenagers that they don't talk to you anymore. It's just a uh, uh, kind of thing. Yes, no. Yeah, it's there. And, yeah, it does bother me because you want to have a rapport with your kids. You, I want to hear what's going on with your day. I try to get what would you do today type of thing. Tell me about your day. Well, you know, same thing as yesterday. And So I, I'm trying to let this pass and see. Hopefully this will pass. And I bet it will. I bet it will. Um so getting back to the uh, the bridge, so describe the moment that she changed her mind. You know, I was there, and yeah, I don't quite remember how long it took, but when I just looked at her and said, wow, you've had so many things go wrong in your life. You know, it's just, it seems to me that there's got to be some stuff that's going to happen that's good to you. It, it just can't keep continuing like this really and um we talked for a for just a bit her and i just back and forth and i did not try to say oh i understand what's going on with you i don't understand what's going on with you but i did say wow that's got to be really tough and i remember her saying something in effect of you're the first person that said that usually people will say i understand it's okay everything's going to be okay and I did know this about it is I don't know everything's going to be okay. So she people with cancer hate it when when I'm told hate it when people say it's going to be okay. Right. Right. Did did you experience that when you had uh, cancer and people would say that? Would oh, you? Oh, it's going to be okay. You don't. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if the doctor told me it's going to be okay, that then that's a relief. <laughs> then that's a relief. Okay. Oh, what's shoot. the What's the best thing to hear from uh, a friend or a family member when you have cancer? I'm I'm here for you. Right. Right. Um, a family member, just I'm here for you. Let me know when you want to talk. You can wake me up in the middle of the night because it is tough. I was in the army when I had cancer, and I had three surgeries. Um, 
and you know the friends would my friends would come and visit me in the hospital i was in germany when this happened and they flew me out to travis air force base here in in the bay area and then i was at letterman army medical center in san francisco so i could be close to home and my friends would come in and visit me i went from about 170 175 pounds down to about 130 or so he lost a lot of weight good lord your hair all goes you know i had all the the things that go along well to be fair all of your weight was in your hair probably (laughs) (laughs) must have been the plugs or something yeah (laughs) so you had lead plugs you actually used uh, spent bullets uh, there we go uh, there we go (laughs) but uh you know i had to throwing up and here's a little tidbit of information for anybody who's who may be going through some chemo or something and i i haven't had this since i don't know why i did this but a Seven Eleven Cola Slurpees, and I have a horrible memory. Memory, but I remember this. They helped me get through this chemotherapy and not throwing up. Whatever those really, did. yeah, it was strange. I would have to go down to Seven Eleven and get a Cola Slurpee. And was it just by accident that you discovered yeah, that? Yeah, but boy, it, it sure helped. Wow. Very strange with the uh, with the nausea. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, what other things uh, to somebody who's who's going through? Uh, cancer uh have you have you do you feel like you kind of shared how they can be there for a yeah. friend or loved one and of course it depends you know uh, supposedly they were telling me when i first was diagnosed with this is that if you have to get a cancer yours is the type to get because it's it's easily curable or put into remission so but it that doesn't help it helps you a little bit but it doesn't help you when you're going through it and mind you because the chemotherapy just kicks your butt I had different uh, five or so different chemotherapy drugs, and they nail you. They really do. And then they were giving me also lithium at the time to raise whatever it is, blood cell count, white blood blood, uh, cell or red blood cell count. And that made my hands shake. So not only do you not feel like eating, but when you do, now my hands are shaking and I can't even hold a plate. It was tough. Wow. So these people that go through through this stuff, um, you know, I got to tell you, it is tough. So let's go back to the the first woman. So she's she tells you her story, and you let her know that that you feel that that must have been hard for her, right. and that you uh, have empathy for for what she's gone through. And how does you said she reacted by saying nobody has ever said that to me before? What did that right. feel like? I was like. I felt, I smiled. I remember smiling. I go, whew, I did something right here. <laughs> this is my first one. Did you say go, that out loud or think that? I'm thinking that. Yeah. I'm thinking that. I go, okay, maybe I got a chance here. And really, you know, it. it's a big responsibility. And you, you have to know going into this that if you're going to do this, not for a living, but as part of the beat, so to speak, if you want to work down there, that these things come along and they happen, that you are going to lose one or more and that's just the way it is but it's their call we didn't do anything to put them there we didn't do anything to to push them off or to make them jump but you are going to lose them and uh you know that's that's what really hits us hard talk about that yeah i have lost two people that i have directly been negotiating with i've seen others where i've been maybe holding back pedestrians or been the supervisor that I have not directly spoken with, you know, quite a few others and they don't hit you as bad. But the ones that I've talked with that, the two that I was right there face to face, um, they haunt you. They really do. 
I see their faces, and you know it's there. And you still think I'm, think about them? Oh yeah, to this day. Yeah. Uh, are you comfortable sharing a- any more about? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Either of them. Um, the first guy I can tell you both was an African American man, and we were on the bridge facing the bay, which was 99% of the folks go there because the other side, if they didn't know, the west side, which faces the ocean, is closed to pedestrian traffic. So almost every person goes on that uh, east side, which faces towards Alcatraz and such. But there's a gentleman over the rail, decently dressed, clean cut, and there was myself and two other officers who were around the, the same time on. So we all had quite a bit of time on. And I think our mistake was that we did this as all three of us. Now, we didn't. We knew better than to all talk at the same time. These people, I think they're very narrow in their vision, in, in their mind. So you don't want to throw a bunch at them at, the, you know, at once because, hey, they're contemplating jumping. they got a lot going on. So I, I tend to talk slow and deliberate and take time with it so they can process it. At least that's how I would feel if I was over that rail. There's a lot of things in your mind. But there was three of us. And this guy would not give us his name. He wouldn't tell us what was going on with his life. He would just talk about general things, um, baseball or whatever, football, nice day out. I try to get people to keep their head up so they're not looking at the water. And he would do that time and time again. And then he would do a kind of a countdown that he was going to jump. And he shook our hands, all three of us. He, and he shook my hand three times. And on the third time, he uh, he said, Kevin, I'm sorry, but I have to go. My grandmother's down there. His grandmother had passed away sometime. And he jumped. And uh, I remember tearing up. You know, it's it was tough. It's things that you know can happen, but until it happens to you and you, and you see it, you know, these are the things that, that they teach you. These things are going to happen. You can't take it home with you or whatever. You're going to take it home with you. It's just the way it is. I, I can't even bring myself to watch the movie The Bridge, which is about just that. And I would imagine you are in that movie. No. No? That was filmed. I remember seeing that. And I got a lot to say about The Bridge. But well, that, that this film, is the, the place yeah. to say it then. I don't like it. Okay. I don't like it at all. Um. What don't you like I was, about it? I'll tell you. I, I was working when they were filming it, and some of the people that I worked with, officers. And, and, and for those that don't know, it's a documentary about people who have taken their lives jumping off the bridge, right. and some of them survived, and they interview them as well, and they also interview family members such. Of, of people who have died. Right. Okay. First off, I'm sure they didn't get those folks or their family's permission to show them jumping off of that bridge. And for someone as me, as trying to talk with those folks, negotiate them to come back over, to look at that, each and every one of those is a failure on our part, even though the majority of the time we weren't there. We didn't get that call soon enough. I think it's absolutely horrible. The folks that made that, I've talked with a a few of them, and they said they just wanted to, to bring awareness to mental illness and what goes on. There's, I think, a lot better ways to do that. I think eth- ethically, that was just a, a poor decision to do that. To show the footage. Of I think somebody. so. I think there's a lot more to it than just bringing light to mental illness and suicides on the bridge by sh- by by showing that. Would, was any of the footage uh, a conversation with the person while they were contemplating it? Or was it all a shot from a distance as the person 
Um, from a distance, okay. yes. They they went under the guise of doing some a documentary under a, a different name or or um, ideal. Okay. Without otherwise, they wouldn't have got the permit that they did to be on each side of the bridge and film that. There was no way they would get a permit for I that. See. I see. So they lied about that. But I, you know, I think it's it's rather disgusting to see that. Some people, if you've never seen it and you're, you know, maybe you're interested, but that's somebody's life. And they've been going through a tough time to watch these folks jump off of there. I mean, from from my standpoint, as being up there and being involved with these folks and watching this happen, to see the look in their eyes, like they they can't do anything. They feel so helpless. And then to watch them go. To put that on the screen, you know, it's, I think it's horrible. I won't watch it. I've seen it because of negotiation seminars and different things I've been at. They show parts of it. But um, I think it's ethically wrong. So oh, the one that you were just talking about with the guy that said, Kevin, I got to go. I mean, that's right. just... Yeah, and then, you know, a thing with that is when I talk to negotiators, when I do these travel around, talk to them, um, you're never supposed to touch anybody unless we're going to arrest them or whatever we're going to do. But I had built rapport with this guy. He, I, in, in my view, I didn't think he was going to try to pull me over. And these folks don't want to do that. No. It's, it's their issue. It's their trouble. They don't want to hurt anybody. They just feel that, that uh, most of the time they feel like they're a burden. And I ask it, you know, I, I interview these folks when they come back over and I ask them, um, what did I do that was not good for you? What did I do that was good? I, so I so I could become better. That was very important. But then when I talk about the medications, almost every single person, if they were prescribed a medication for a mental illness, had been off of their medication for several weeks. So that's really important for folks. And, and I take medication for a mental illness to stay on that. A lot of times folks are very disgruntled about how they feel with with the medication the side effects of it or maybe it's not working but they're always coming up with new drugs if they even need drugs i mean i take a lot of medication for the heart thing and then cholesterol and everything else you know then we don't want to be on medication but if you need to be and it helps you then work on getting there it takes the time to get that stuff right you know, I always like to say is in that decision whether or not to take meds, ask yourself what are the side effects of not being on meds. And for me, it's constant suicidal ideation. Um, you know, the list goes the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, and so it's the it's the softer, easier way for me is to is to be on the meds. But yeah, I don't like taking them either. And I'm sure the meds, the medications that you take. Um, it took a while to get the dosage right and maybe the medications right. In 15 years of being on the 16 years of being on meds, um, I've probably changed meds or the dosage of the meds 50 times, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And it takes patience with each new drug or each new dosage. And then, you know, maybe your body has changed or your life circumstances are different. And you don't need as much or maybe you need more. Or, yeah. yeah. So it's, it, a, it's a constant involvement between you and your doctor. And, and hopefully you, you get a good practitioner that cares. And, okay, let's, let's really sit about this. What I like to see, and mind you, I, I talk with a lot of doctors now, um, is when they will come from behind that table 
that desk and talk to you. I like that approach. I really do. Sit down with that person. If they have suicide ideation and they're seriously contemplating it, you know, that's the time. You've got to come out from behind that desk, sit down with them, and develop a plan with them, with their involvement, to get them past this, to get them through this. I think that really, really helps. We'll get back to the, the other people uh, on the bridge, but another question that I wanted to ask you, because I, I can never have anything be linear. I've got to always fuck it up and corkscrew it. Um, because if I don't ask the question, I have such a terrible memory. If I don't ask the question when it comes into my mind, I will forget and then kick myself later. Was there any stigma with you coming out about having uh, depression while you were on the force? And that's why I didn't come out with it for a very long time. I didn't talk about any of these things. Um, and I'll go around a little bit to, to answer your question. I was in the Army. I worked at San Quentin. I was in the Harbor Patrol. These macho jobs to where you don't show weakness. It, you just don't. You don't talk about it. You suck it up and you carry on. And um, this is kind of how it all hit me. So I thought when I came out with this that I would lose friends and maybe get booted off the job. You know, you can't have a guy with depression carrying a gun. But no, it wasn't anything like that. Nothing like that. Everything was confidential. I told my bosses, okay, thank you for telling us. And end of story. I didn't, nobody thought any less of me. I actually gained friends um, when I retired. Now, speaking all over. I mean, I have you know, like Facebook friends from everywhere in the world, Africa and everywhere else. And I get to do things like this, which I would have never gotten the chance to do. So, And have other police officers come forward and shared with you and opened up to you about their struggles? Absolutely. What's that like? That is really, really cool because they're suffering out there. Every time that I speak with law enforcement folks, there's always one or two, and they're not going to do it in the crowd when I generally ask, does anybody have any questions or, or what's your questions for me? They'll wait. And a lot of times they'll wait till everybody's gone just to come up. Hey, I'm going through that same thing or I went through that same thing. Thank you for bringing that out. Um, every single time, there's always at least one or two, and I'm sure there's others in there that are thinking that. So you know, it's it's kind of an I don't know embarrassing or whatever to talk about yourself because it's. But I believe if I'm going to ask somebody else to do it, I better come out and set an example. So this is what I do. I throw it all on the ground. There, here it is. Here's me, and this is why I do it. Though I don't need the sympathy, empathy whatever else i want folks to know it's okay now we still got a job to do if we're going to be cops you got to get in there and sometimes you got to get your hands dirty but let's do it legally and let's do it right of course but then there's the other side of it too if we can chat with someone for an hour instead of rushing in with guns maybe that you know that's a that's a, a situation that's, let's take a look at what feelings come up in you with all of the news stories about so many unarmed uh, young black men being shot. There's a lot of things that come into play. One, I don't know the full story. Um, but we we look at, I'm just, uh, I'll tell you about our training. We are trained not to kill. We are trained to stop folks. And if someone has a knife, for instance, at 21 feet, it's a proven fact that if I have my gun in my holster even, that I cannot get it out and and shoot a round off before that person can get to me. And that's 21 feet. So most of the time they're closer than that. 
our job not only is to protect the public, but to protect ourselves. We need to go home. So, mind you, there's some uh, there's some bad officers out there. In every job, there's there's some folks who don't need to be there. And unfortunately, this is where we see these come on. But if you look at the statistics as far as officer shootings, uh, it's it's so small as to the amount of officers out there in the United States. It's less than 1%. So it's very, very small. But it takes up such a huge thing in the media that that's that's what, what we see and was focused on. Um, and some of it's rightfully so. We, you know, as cops, we do some, some knucklehead stuff sometimes that um, we look at as, God, what were you thinking? But then again, I don't know the full story. But I know we, you know, there's some guys out there that, that big training issues. Or and, just straight up psychopaths. Yeah. You know, they, they messed up. And boy, you got to be held accountable now. You just can't do that. We're, you know, we, we have a lot of authority out there. And, I can tell you, um, in the higher patrol, they're very, very serious. They say when you join the higher patrol, it's like joining the priesthood. Very, <laughs> so we don't have a big sense of humor. <laughs> but um, you know, we train a lot. We go to the range once a month, so it's not like we're doing this yearly thing. We do a lot of training, and we take it very seriously. So I was very fortunate enough never to have to shoot my weapon or discharge my weapon at someone, and. Uh, thank god for that so the guys that go through it it's tough on them it's not something that we want to do for for most cops it's something that you had to do in protecting your life another officer's life or another citizen's life so um thank you um let's talk about the second person the second was um it was even tougher it was July 22nd of 2013, and I retired in November of that year. Uh, we received a call of a gentleman over the rail uh, about mid-span on the bridge. I responded down there. I was the on-duty supervisor. I was a sergeant. And the officers were busy with different things they were handling, so they couldn't break free at the time and respond. But a Golden Gate Bridge officer, after 9-11, the Golden Gate Bridge Highway and Transportation District hired security officers, so to speak. And they have weapons and their uniforms and they have patrol cars. Um, they do not make arrests. They call us. So I went down there. There was already a Golden Gate Bridge officer speaking with this gentleman, and his name was Jason Garber. He was 32 years old from New Jersey. He had flown out to the bridge to attempt this suicide. And he had flown out three times, this being his third time. So the officer that was engaging Jason, was a, he's, he's a great officer for the Golden Gate Bridge. If I had to have somebody negotiating, this guy was it. He, he's very good. He's an older guy in his 50s. And he really cares. He doesn't want to see this happen to folks. He's not there to be a hero. He's there to do a job. So he's talking with Jason. And then... Um, I try to get some information about him. And Jason, he is not under the influence that we saw of drugs or alcohol. Neither of these two gentlemen were that, I, that I'm talking about. He apparently had been diagnosed with bipolar and had uh, medic been taking some medication, but I think he stopped it. He felt that, that people didn't understand what he was going through. He felt that he was a burden. I had a lot of stuff going on. But i got to tell you, Jason was very articulate. He was a writer, a poet, 
uh, it was amazing to speak with him. It really was. Uh, he had his cell phone with him, and Jason was sitting across this cord. So he had a cell phone in the middle of him, um, and he was getting text and phone calls. He had written an email to go out to his friends about the time he thought he would be on the bridge, and, and it did. So he started getting text and calls and all sorts of things. He never answered. He would look down at it and read things, and he would cry, and then he'd smile. And uh, and we started talking about sports a little bit, and because back there, hockey. And I don't know anything about hockey, but one of the guys did. So he talked to him about hockey, and that, that was kind of interesting for him. He asked us if we know the story of Pandora's box. And, of course, I've heard of it. I don't remember the story, so to speak. But, oh, yeah, we nodded. We did. Um, just so everybody knows, uh, Greek mythology, Zeus creates Pandora and sends her down to Earth with this box and says, never, ever, ever open that box under any circumstances. Of course, one day she does. And out flies all sorts of evils, sorrows, plagues against man. The only good thing to come out of that box was hope. Now, Jason says, when I open that box, hope is the greatest evil. That's how profound this guy was. Wow. And it stumped me. I didn't know what to say. I'd never heard that before. So we're waiting there, and I'm trying to to think, boy, what can I say about this? By that, did he mean that it makes his choice more difficult because it keeps him here? Well, because hope, he keeps trying to get it, trying to get it, trying to get it, and it's just out of reach. That's what it seemed to me. I see. Okay. It's always there, but you never get it. I so see. that hope is the greatest evil. That's kind of how I interpreted it. I see. And I think a lot of people feel that. You know, that, that that's all. we got to have hope. If we don't have hope, we don't have much, you know. After a bit, you know, he kind of he straightened up, and I was on his left, and uh, I saw a tear just roll down from his right eye down his cheek, and he leaned to his right, and and he was gone. Two hundred twenty feet down, and hits the water, and I, uh, we both thought the Golden Gate Bridge officer and I that we were kind of in the middle of this. Yeah, it could go bad, but we weren't ready. You, you can kind of tell sometimes. But I thought we still had a ways to go. This just came out of the blue. And I'm standing there going, wow, what the hell just happened? And I'm shocked and I'm, I'm mad. I feel we failed. And uh, we call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard will come out and position their boat a couple of hundred feet away or so from the bridge when we have these incidents. So they were right there when Jason jumped and they come up and get him. So here's what happens after that. I'm standing there. And I, I got to think of the officers who are holding the pedestrians back. I got to hold it together. I, I still have a job to do. But a gentleman comes running up to me and he goes, officer, there's a body in the water. And, you know, I'm kind of, uh, excuse my language. No shit. I was pissed. What do you think I've been doing? He goes, no, another one. So we were in the middle of the bridge. Apparently up, or not apparently, it did happen. Up at the North Tower, a gentleman had jumped right about the same time as Jason did. So I went, responded up there on my motorcycle, and I see this guy, and he's the, the body, he appears deceased. He is on his stomach um, floating into the bay. So we have these markers that the Golden Gate Bridge folks carry, and you throw it down when it hits the water, it throws out smoke, and we can mark the bodies. So even though the Coast Guard was right there with Jason, I had the bridge throw out this marker because I didn't want to lose that body. It's very important. So when we went up, 
to see this other guy, uh, I saw the body, and I had Bridge draw out another marker so we could follow this as it progressed out into the bay. Coast Guard was not able to come back out in time, and a huge container ship coming out towards the Golden Gate, going out into the ocean, ran over that body and never to be found. Oh, my so, God. Um, on top of all this, we had another jumper, so to speak, an hour and a half prior to all of this. So it's you know, three in one day. Yeah. Unusual, but it, it's it's really tough. Wow. So when you go home after that day, describe your feelings and your actions. I held it together until I got home. Um, actually stopped on my motorcycle on the way home on my exit and just kind of screamed a little bit. I was angry. And then when I got home, it happened a little more. So it was a, it was a tough night. I was disappointed in myself. You know, I feel even though these things happen, if you're going to go into this line of work, this stuff's going to happen. But still, I take it personally. What could I or what could we have done better or different? Maybe nothing, but it still affects us. I think that's what also kind of helps us become better at our craft. So give me some good stories. Good stories. Okay. A gentleman. I'll take a woman. Um, I was working as an officer down at the bridge years ago. And I get a call that a woman, African-American, was on a Golden Gate Bridge highway and transportation bus. It's the big buses that, that carry folks all around the counties. Had told the bus driver that she wants out going southbound at the north end of the bridge and there's no bus stop there the bus just continues through there and makes a stop past the toll plaza well this lady was so intent on this she went to the door and started kicking out the little windows on the door so the bus driver stopped and this lady jumped out of the bus and instead of going onto the bridge she got scared and ran down a little hillside just on the north side of the bridge on the west side so I get the call, and I respond over there with a um, U.S. Parks Police person. And we can hear her. We went down below. There's a, a road, a dirt road below where she was. And, and we can hear her going through the brush. Sounds like a deer going through the brush. So we yell up to her, hey, you know, we, we're going to come up. We're going to help you. And she says, don't. And we can't see her. It's so thick. And it's the summertime. Um, and she yells at us, don't come up here. I have a gun. I'm going to shoot you. And she kept saying this. And finally, we got no alternative. We got to go up and get her. So we start working our way through this brush. And it's nasty. It's nasty. We get up. I can hear her. She keeps making noise. And she would say stuff. I have a gun. You better not. But I'm sure she can hear us. We're making lots of noise getting up there. As we get up, I see her sitting in a little tiny bit of a clearing, maybe 10 feet across. And she's naked. Completely start naked I go okay this is different so it's obvious she doesn't have a gun there's nothing laying around but we have our guns out just in case you know you gotta be prepared we go up to her and you know she was she started to cry and say hey we're just here to help you so we take her have her put her clothes back on and we get her down through all this brush all the way down and I take her and start interviewing her to see what is really going on. And she had all sorts of things going wrong in her life. 
uh, the family didn't want to take her in any longer. You know, she felt that she she was a burden to her family, the Wait, medications. That seems to be a constant it with really everybody. Is. But the thing is, um, uh, most of the time when I've been able to talk to a family, it's absolutely wrong. But these folks have never talked to the family about that. Ask them, you know, do you feel as if I'm a burden to you? They haven't asked that. Am I a burden to you? But then with this woman, I said, why did you take off all your clothes? What, what was that about? I don't understand that part of it. And she goes, and and mind you, I didn't really look at her too close. I'm not saying mm-hmm. anything about that. Mm-hmm. But she was shapely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she goes, I thought it would scare you away. I remember that distinctly. I go, no, you're not going to scare us away. we got a job to do, and, and I want to help. So we took her down to uh, San Francisco General Hospital, and that's what we do with folks. And then I never see her again until after I retire. I did a, a TED Talk up in Vancouver, and, and she got a hold of me, and she remembered me. And she's doing wonderfully now. So it was very strange wow. to hear her story, and, and she thanked me. Um, and I never saw her after that is typically what we do. I don't contact folks to follow up with them. Um, generally, I don't think it's right. It's a very, very dark time in their life, and I don't want them. I don't want that to be a trigger for anything else. Uh, if they want to contact me, they always have the office number they can call. And, yeah, I'll have coffee with you, whatever you want to do. We can talk about things. But I, I think it's, you know, the majority of the time, it's a, it can be a kind of a negative thing for folks and they want to get past that day so i don't want them remembering that yeah and the kind of the balls in their court right mm-hmm. right um what did you what did you feel when she when she got a hold of you, you know, that's fantastic it really is to see someone go from where she was at that dark area and even take off all her clothes. And, she, and I asked her, do you remember that? And she goes, oh, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. What was I thinking? And she goes, and first she goes, oh, you remember that. <laughs> of course I remember that. <laughs> so she wants to forget it, too. Yeah. But people do, you know, when you get to that level, you just don't know what's going on a lot of times. So uh, I'm very happy that she's doing so well now. And a lot of people do do better. Some people don't. You know, that they go downhill. But there's others that do better. Some are still carrying on the best that they can. They're they're making a living for themselves. So I want to see, you know, what we can do to, to help those folks get on that. I think my job now as a suicide prevention uh, advocate is to try to get to folks before they get up to that bridge, before they put that gun to their head, before they sit in the car and tape all the windows shut and do a poisoning thing. That's what I feel my job is now. I can't imagine how many lives um, you've already positively uh, affected. Um, How many people roughly have you been able to talk off of the bridge you know i i never say a number the press comes up with some numbers sometimes but mm-hmm. i know because of keeping track before 9-11 there was just one officer working down that whole area and for eight hour shifts eight and a half hour shifts so it would be me and then you know somebody mm-hmm. else but i know for years i was handling four to six cases a month and that would be either someone over the rail or in the parking lot um, you know, in that area, 
So there are hundreds. It's just the way the way it was. And I hate to say that's not a something I'm proud of. It's the way it was. So you know, it's it's um we we have a lot of work to do as a society. We do. We have so much work to do. And um I think we gotta start reaching people when they're three, four years old and, and, and get them understanding that there's there's no bad emotion there's no bad thoughts there's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them right and um you know so many so many children are shamed for feeling uh what they're feeling or thinking what they're thinking and we have no control over what pops into our head or the feelings that pop into our body and then it sets us on this track of thinking we're wrong we're bad we're a burden. Yes. You know, and just for kids in school, the amount of stress that that's going on back when, uh, I'm sure you're younger than me, but when I was going to school. I'm the same age as you. Okay. Yeah. Well, you look better. <laughs> I do not. But for the record to the listener, I do not. But thank you. <laughs> so back when we were in school, I, I, there was stress, of course, but I, I don't think there was as much stress as there is these days. I was just listening to a radio talk show, and they had a medical student on there. And the medical student said his first two years in medical school were not as stressful as his first two years in high school. So, wow. I believe that. Wow. I believe that. So, yeah, these these kids, there's a lot going on. And, you know, that bullying. It's terrible. It is. It is. Um, and now there's so many ways to do it, you know, with the social media. Yeah. You don't just have to hear it at school. It can go all over now. That's really tough. That that weighs heavy on people's minds when, when they do that. Do you have another one that you want to share, or do you feel like you've given us a good... Uh... Well, I can tell you a pretty personal one. Okay. And it's about my boy. And many times I can't even tell the story. It's It's tough. It's rough. But it turned out well. My, I have two boys, like I said. One's 12 and one is 15. And uh, like I said, I travel a lot now, speaking. Um, last, I believe it was last August, I was flying into San Francisco Airport, coming back home, turn on my cell phone, and there's a message from my younger kid, little Travis. He said, Dad, you need to get here quick. Kevin broke an iPad. He's in the backyard and says he's going to kill himself. Well, a little drama there. You know. So I start working my way up to their house, which is on the way to my house. Of course, I'm going to stop and I want to see what's going on with this. I get to the house and I call him baby boy, my oldest. And he's in the backyard in the dark, just pacing. And I'm just giving you kind of the reader's digest of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I watch him for a minute and I walk back and I put my hand on his shoulder and I go, hey, baby boy, what's going on? And he just completely breaks down crying. We sit out in the backyard for quite some time talking about the different things. He's, he is very truthful. He's telling me when I'm asking his questions, he's, wow, he's, he's going through a lot. He wasn't being bullied, but I had never discussed my divorce with him because I was so ashamed and embarrassed about it. He thought he was the cause of the divorce, which was set huge in his little mind. Uh, I didn't think I was pushing him for good grades. He's about a 3.7, but he said, yeah, so I am. A whole bunch of stuff going through his mind. We decide to go see a counselor. And when we see the counselor, 
I ask, baby boy, do you want me in the room with you? He says, yes. I ask the counselor, would you like me in the room? Can I be in the room? He goes, oh, yeah, come on in. And I tell him what I do for a living so he has a clue in case there's suicide ideation there. Mm -hmm. We go in there, and he starts asking little Kevin all these questions, basic things. And then he starts digging into them a little bit. And he asks him, have you ever cut yourself on purpose? I know exactly what that is, and you probably do also. Mm -hmm. It's non-suicidal self-injury. A a cutter is what we call them. Mm -hmm. People do that for a variety of reasons. One, maybe they have a hard time communicating. That's that's how they do it. You know, uh, they're emotionally, physically, maybe a lot of pain. So they cut themselves, releases endorphins, and to mask that pain. There's a whole variety of reasons why they do this. But he did this, and he he kind of turned his left wrist over and like he poked himself with a knife or something. I was shocked. I I, I had no clue while this was going on. Um, I felt so bad for this little guy. I felt like I was a complete failure for letting this little guy down. And then this counselor. He goes, you're not going to commit suicide, are you? Just an absolutely poor way of asking that question. You know, if he would have said, you know, have you been having thoughts of killing yourself? Normalize the events that's going on with him. It would have been a hell of a lot better. And another coming out from behind that desk. Hmm. So, of course, little Kevin says no. He he answered it for him. So I I was pretty mad for him asking that question. But... I talked with him afterwards, and he, I did not know this, many folks in the mental health care field don't have the training in suicide assessment. It was very, very much an eye-opener. But we stayed with this guy, and my son is doing much, much better. And, you know, the story goes on and on about this, but he's doing much, much better. And we do talk about these things now, and I I am a lot more aware of what's going on. At least I I think I am. (laughs) So I learned a lot, and... It was, that was a tough one. You know, and what I think is so great is that you heard things that were hard to hear, but you took them in. And so many parents, I think, refuse to hear the things they don't want to hear. They want to come up with a reason why. They want to put it back on the child. And um, it sounds like you took ownership of um, yeah. of some things. And that, to me, is... Not the sign of a, a parent who's a failure. That's a sign of a parent who's a success because all parents are going to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. That, that helps. <laughs> um, but I, I know exactly what you mean because I've had people tell me this and parents talk about it. Oh, we th- and when someone has completed, a kid has completed a suicide, the parents all were shocked. We had no idea. You know, he mentioned something that he just he's not going to be here next week or or something like that or you know he said i just want to kill myself but we thought he was just joking and messing around well people don't say that just messing around or they shouldn't be so you know that's something else as a society to take these things serious we can get you in and get you some help when people start giving away their their prized items not having plans for the future maybe not taking care of themselves bathing and and you know a lot of different things that go on Ask them. Maybe they're not in crisis. Maybe they're just having a few bad days. But, boy, we can sure just ask them and see what's going on, and they'll appreciate it. Sometimes they get angry with you. I'm not going to lose, you know, commit suicide. They'll get mad at you for asking them about it. Still, you care. Better to err on that side than than on the other side. Right, right. Absolutely. Anything else that you'd like to uh, share with our listeners? You know, I... 
take care of yourself is is one thing um we tend to as far as like law enforcement and caregivers and many other people many other occupations we give 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 and we miss what's going on with ourselves, and we miss what's going on with our family so start with ourselves. take some time for ourselves, and try to evaluate some things are you treating people the same you did years ago or you know better worse even ask your friends and how do you think I am? If you're very sarcastic all the time at work, maybe you're suffering from burnout. You know, compassion fatigue, if possible, or vicarious trauma. A lot of things go on. So take some time for yourself. I, I think that's a, a really big one. Get a hobby, something, a club. Social support is just huge. Huge. Absolutely. We, think we, can, we think we can do this alone. And I was a loner for many, many, most of my life. How'd that work? Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. I can tell you. If you just get a, a couple of people, that's why when you see uh, guys that retire and they, they'll get a little club thing going, just don't meet for coffee once a week or two or three times a week at, at a place and just chat. Those folks tend to live longer yeah. because they're just getting things out. They're not dumping all their, their issues on their friends, but they're just talking about things. And I think there's something chemically that happens when we engage with another person. Absolutely. I think our bodies change. Something gets released. I know when I've done it, I'm the first to admit it because I'm the one who holds everything in. When I've had some conversations with with some friends, wow, and they care. You know, they're going to listen. They want to be there. It really, really helps. So do that, please, for yourself. Well, great advice. And, Kevin, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, how can they do that? Do you have a website? I do. And um, my organization now is called Pivotal Points. Um, you can reach me at Kevin Briggs at pivotal-points.com. Okay. Or you just go to the website of uh, Pivotal Points, too. Okay. And are you on Facebook or any of that other I stuff? Am. Okay. Yeah. So people, in fact, I think that might have been how I found you. I can't remember. It was so long ago yeah. that we... <laughs> do I? That I reached out to you, but... Um, I'm so glad that our paths were were able to cross, and uh, I just um, want to thank you for for being that that shining light that people need when they're when they're in that place of being that hand, literally that hand that that reaches reaches out to them. Well, thank you, thank you for having me on your show here. Love, love, love talking to to Kevin and doing such great work out there, and what a what a sweet man. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. Um, you can support us financially by going to our website, mentalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation or, my favorite, becoming a monthly donor for as little as 5 bucks a month. It uh, may not seem like a lot to you, but it adds up uh, and helps us keep the podcast uh, going and means the world to me. So... Uh, consider doing that. Uh, You can also help us financially by using one of our Amazon links. And then if you buy something, uh, Amazon will give us uh, some money from it and it doesn't cost you uh, anything. That also helps support the show. And um, you can also support us non-financially by um, going to iTunes, writing something nice about the podcast and uh, giving us a good rating that boosts us in the rankings and brings more people to the show. Uh, and you can also spread the word about the podcast through social media. That's a that's a big big way to support the the podcast. 
Um, or you can go to the website and uh, put your thumb up your ass and gaze at the stars, which might sound like uh, it's a little bit of multitasking, but once you get your thumb in your ass, it's not that hard because you're basically just standing with your thumb in your ass. Most of the most of the action is just you moving your eyes back and forth, looking at the stars and looking for somebody who might walk up on you. Let's get to the surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Grayson and about his depression. He writes, I go to any length to prevent my family and friends from seeing my cuts and scars, but I'd happily show them to a stranger if I thought I had a chance at finding someone who wanted to know how I feel. Um, wow. I get that. I get that. And I think so many of us get that, Grayson. And um, I hope you find somebody to, to open up to about that. That's too much to keep inside. Snapshot from his life. All I wanted to do, and he has OCD, all I wanted to do was read a book, but by the time I finished checking, by the time I finished all of my checking rituals, I was so exhausted that I just put it back on the shelf. This is filled out by Happy to Be Here Most Days. She writes about her depression like I am hollow and perforated. So no matter how much love or kindness or hope uh, I or others pour in, it just seeps out all the holes and leaves me empty again. About her ADD, I can't concentrate long enough to coherently describe my inability to concentrate. That's a good one. About being in the closet, she writes, like no one can see me or hear me, even though I am all the brightest colors and screaming at the top of my lungs. And then a snapshot from her life. Today, as I walked out of my office in a rush, always in a rush, I couldn't remember if I had my phone. So I looked in my purse, as I do multiple times most days when I have a similar lapse over the location of my phone or keys or whatever. But my purse is totally bottomless and was filled with so much crap that I couldn't tell if my phone was in it or not. So I turned on the flashlight on my phone, which was in my hand, and tried to use the light to see into the deeper recesses of my bottomless crap-filled bag. I didn't find my phone. So I walked back in my office, set down my bags, searched my desk, searched my briefcase, and then turned back to my purse again before finally realizing that my fucking phone had been in my hand the whole time. And I used it to search for itself. And my husband wonders why he often hears me mutter, I am such an idiot to myself. Oh, that's a great one. Thank you for sharing that. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Soldier Socks. And about his depression, he writes, My soul is too small and weak to drive this meat machine. I need to put life on hold and power down. About his ADD, I'm going to be healthy and go for a run. Where did I put my running shoes? Why am I holding the milk? Why is the fridge door open? Why is there a cup of coffee with a spoon in it? Wait, I found the left shoe. Where's the right one? Fuck it. Running is stupid. I think I'm going to go out and get a coffee. ADD is a motherfucker. This uh, is a shame and secret survey filled out by Tristis. And uh, she is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my brother's father... 
molested and or raped me when I was very young. I don't remember it well, but I do remember him holding me hostage on Christmas Eve in front of my family. He said he'd kill me if I ever told. I remember thinking he couldn't hurt me in front of all these adults. Luckily, we lived a block away from the police station, so he was caught before he could slice my throat. He went to prison, got out, fucked some more kids, and went back in, got out, and murdered his ex-girlfriend with a frying pan. He won't get out again, but that doesn't stop family from fearing he will. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I started off with a dark one. Um, I, should have, I should have put this more towards the back. I didn't do a good job of uh, of uh, organizing the, the surveys this, this week. Um, she's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, the sexual abuse ultimately led me to abuse myself. Before my abuser went to prison, I'd learned what I now know to be autoerotic asphyxiation or asphyxiophilia. On top of a laundry list of disorders, I can add one of the most dangerous paraphilias. I try to deny my sexuality, even going so far as telling others I lean a little towards asexuality. Truth is, anytime I get depressed, or more depressed than usual, I get the urge. If I deny it, I dream about it and suffocate until I wake up to realize I've just orgasmed. The worst part is it feels so damn good. I live in constant fear and shame of my sexuality. I've been practicing AEA most of my life and now am on heart medications. Uh, I guess it affects your, your heart. Uh, I'm in my 30s and I'm always the youngest patient in the cardiologist's office. I'm basically waiting to die young because I can't stop, which is terrifying. The way I found your show was when I was looking for information about paraphilias. Thankfully, I did research for peer-reviewed articles on this and was able to contact a few psychologists. There were only two as most research is done on men or on casualties. The fact that they both replied within uh, within hours when I honestly wasn't expecting anything was a clear indication to me of just how fucked up this is. I had one call me and give me great advice. He even wants me to call back. I told everything to my husband, who was shocked that he had no clue, even though we'd been married for over a decade. My therapist is about to know everything, and that's fucking terrifying. I hope that I don't kill myself before I have a chance to beat this. I never should have known so young about sex and how it feels. I never should have been able to identify those same emotions so young to form this dangerous sexual orientation slash fetish slash desire. Any positive experiences with your abusers? No, I was always scared of my abuser. It was a relief when he went to prison. I know I'm one of the few who got justice for my sexual predator. Perhaps I would once have told you I've healed, but that was before I was confronted by a gynecologist and her nurse about this. I broke down and told them everything and cried. I've never felt so filthy. I went home and took a shower, scrubbing myself until the water ran cold. Darkest thoughts. You mean besides the fact that I suffocate myself for pleasure? I would say the answer to this one is better suited for the next question. What are your darkest secrets? So, as if my situation weren't fucked up enough as it is, I ended up in and out of the hospital as a kid a lot. The problem was with my uterus, uh, was with my uterus, so I ended up pissing myself, um, until probably second or third grade. Well, it says the problem was my U-R-E-T-E-R-S. So I imagine she was trying to type uterus, but anyway. 
Uh, so I ended up pissing myself until probably second or third grade. I always had a spare change of clothes. Sometimes I'd end up in the hospital and miss school. I almost died and was given hours to live until a specialist was flown in to help. I told you this to help you understand the next part. This was at about the same time as I was being abused. Somehow the two combined to give me the most confusing sexual fantasy. Since I was a kid, I've gotten excited and aroused by the idea of being experimented on. It could be a lab with scientists or a hospital or even with a psychologist. For this reason, I'm terrified of being a hypochondriac and counter that by waiting far too long to complain about problems. It doesn't help at all that my paraphilia could land me in a hospital as it has in the past. God, I just want to stop. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having shared uh, my fantasy already, I'm just going to say that it's embarrassing and freeing to actually admit all this stuff in writing. My whole life has been about how to keep this secret. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You need to understand that your kids are not trying to attack you. You need to be able to talk. We need to be able to talk to you honestly, but you make that fucking impossible. I'm a complete pushover, and while it's not your fault, I did learn to be that way to please you. Please just fucking learn to listen, and don't take everything your kids say as a personal attack. What, if anything, do you wish for? To feel sane, confident, intelligent, and significant. I'd really like to be an advocate for people in shitty situations like mine. The best thing I could wish for would be to work for a nonprofit in the background, organizing scheduling events. That's where the real work happens. I'm scared of people, so I don't want to be a leader, but doing the dirty work for a meaningful organization would be amazing. Guess I really want to find meaning in my life. I think that's an incredibly important thing for, for you to get in touch with. And I think it could help you heal as well. Because I think for a lot of us who, who have been violated and had our trust uh, fucked with, um, finding meaning and purpose in our life is hugely important because maybe I should just speak for myself. It has helped me to trust again. It has helped me to see the good in the world and to see the good in myself. Um, have you shared these things with others? When I shared with my husband, he was concerned but calm. He's a great guy and has about the best reaction I could imagine. He's endlessly supportive. That makes me ashamed because I'm endlessly fucked up. Let him love you. Just let him love you. You're worthy of his love. How do you feel writing these things down? A little better. It will be a while before I come to normalize my behaviors as was suggested to me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Absolutely. Ladies, the science is geared toward men, and the only way to get help for us is to be strong enough to step forward. If you have a problem you think no woman should have, I want you to know there are more of us who are completely fucked up too. We'll never be able to get appropriate help until we have the strength to ask for help. It was surprisingly liberating to be open about my darkest self with my spouse. I just want to send you a big, big warm hug and high-five you for opening up uh, not only to your spouse, but sharing that um, with us. That was, that, was really, um, that was really moving. Thank you. This is a, uh, an email that I got from a woman, um, and uh, she calls herself Shannon, and she wrote, 
I have been a problem drinker now for 10 years. I'm 32, a fairly new mom, and am otherwise in a good place in my life. I haven't heard you talk a whole lot about your drinking history or habits, but I think I can relate a little bit. I'm definitely a, quote, functioning alcoholic, and though many of my friends and some family have seen the complete ass that I become when I drink too much, I'm pretty positive that nobody, aside from my husband, knows I'm an alcoholic. I keep it a secret for the most part and minimize it when others are around. I generally will drink only a few drinks when at a friend's house or out to dinner, but then I binge when I get home. My husband and I definitely stay in many nights, choosing drinking over visiting friends. We have made a pact not to drink and drive anymore uh, now that we are parents. I've always had an issue with passing out and blacking out. I just don't stop. was born with the, without the off button when it comes to certain things, i.e. alcohol f- and food. The only three factors that have motivated me enough to cut down over the years were trying to conceive, pregnancy, be- being ill, or losing weight. My typical day consists of waking up for work, feeling tired, and maybe a bit buzzed from the night prior. I take my son to daycare and get on with my day. I am not usually a day drinker, but the thoughts uh, about day drinking have been getting more frequent and strong lately. Once my husband and I get our son down to bed, we have a few strong drinks. He goes to bed, but I stay up and drink until I pass out or black out, whichever comes first. I choose alcohol over sleep, so I wake up looking more and more like shit every day. Hangovers are rare anymore as long as I can sleep most of it off. It's taking my physical beauty. People used to call me pretty, and I get the mild shake sometimes. I wish I could tell the 20-year-old me how this would turn out back when I had the world ahead of me. The odd part is part of me enjoys having a secret life. It's my identity. Who would I be without the booze? Did you feel this way at any point? Torn in a love-hate relationship with booze? It's sucking the life out of me. My soul is so thirsty. Too afraid to be exposed, but I'm so close to trying a support group. Maybe I'll fit in there. Well, I can tell you if you went to a support group and you shared what you just wrote, you would absolutely fit in there. And I felt exactly the same way that you did. I felt like my soul was dying, but I didn't know how to stop because the only way I could relax was with booze and weed, which I knew was making me more depressed. And I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to stop. And um, I... you should know that drug addiction and alcoholism are progressive illnesses and they never get better. They only, uh, left untreated, they they only get worse. And you may not be drinking uh, a lot during the day now, but that's right now. Uh, I can almost guarantee you will eventually start drinking during the day. You will eventually start driving uh, while you're drunk. Um. These are all my opinions, but that's what I saw in in my drinking and all the people whose stories I've heard is uh, you just keep moving the line back and back and back and back of things I'm never going to do. And um, for me, I started going to bars and drinking by myself, which I had never done before. Um, I started driving really erratically, um, just dangerously high speeds. Um suicidally fast and uh yeah it's i really hope you go get help and you would absolutely fit in you would absolutely fit in and not only do you deserve a sober life because there is a great life inside of you waiting to be to be nurtured that sounded cheesy um but your husband and your kids deserve that well 
as well. You don't have to be passing out in front of your kids for your alcoholism to be affecting them. It, I guarantee it already is because an untreated alcoholic is not truly present and is, has no, doesn't really have a grasp on the amount of fear and selfishness, um, that their mind is, uh, generating every day. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Zip F. And about his depression, he writes, deluding myself that any positive emotion is just me deluding myself. About his PTSD, um, these, oh, he, and also he's a um, combat vet. Uh, about his PTSD, desire to cross boundaries and have them crossed to become aroused. Fear and arousal becoming forever intertwined. About being a sex crime victim hypersexual and asexual simultaneously, thoroughly desperate for touch and simultaneously repulsed. I definitely relate to that one. About uh, living with an abuser, uh, he writes, living with my brother that uh, abused me from seven to nine years old, um, texting about groceries, then going to sleep, fantasizing about killing him. Uh, snapshot from his life, going to sleep crying after a big argument with my ex-girlfriend about my issues with erectile dysfunction. Her saying I stress too much about not being able to perform and not talking it out, putting the stress on her. Her not realizing I was not thinking about her at all, but how much better and natural it felt to be abused by my brother as a child and how unattractive and self-loathing these thoughts make me feel. How the only pleasure I feel during sex with her is non-genital and in the split second during orgasm. How I'm constantly fantasizing about men not being able to say one word. Actually, this is, he is not a combat vet. That's another, that's another uh, survey that I have selected to, to read. But um, sending you some love. Sending you some love, man. You are not alone. You are not alone. This is filled out by uh, Matt, and he is the combat vet. And about his anxiety, he writes, I have so much to do that I feel like I might vomit, but the weight of it all paralyzes me and I do none of it. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. About his codependency, I'll always make the time to do for you what I can never seem to find the time to do for myself. That's a profound one. And then here's a a snapshot uh, from Matt's life. I love my kids and wife so much it fills me with deep warmth until my guilt about constantly failing them crashes over me like an emotional ice bucket challenge. Then I want to die and feel unbelievable guilt that I've inflicted myself on them and simultaneously even more guilt that the warmth of their love isn't enough for me. Then I feel guilty that I didn't absorb the high-speed metal that I am sure that I was meant to absorb in the desert somewhere, somewhere. Then I wonder how much more worthy of my life the person who received my young death was and how much better they would have lived if I hadn't been so weak and wasted time in college like my mother wanted me to do instead of joining the military as I felt called to do. There's no way to know, but I am sure that they would have. I am not just an ingrate. I am a wasteful life thief. Nothing is worse than wanting to die but feeling obligated not to. Matt, uh, I hope you go talk to somebody. I hope you go talk to somebody at the VA um, because I know there are other men and women that feel the way that you do and you deserve help. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're struggling so much. It sounds so overwhelming. Sending you some love, buddy.
This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Noteworthy Martian, and it's a shame and secret survey, and he is straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, when I was seven or so, a boy in my neighborhood a few years older than me offered, question mark, to teach me about sex. After a few secret sessions, I can't remember how many or for how long, I began to feel that something was wrong, so I refused to continue. I've seen him twice in the last 15 years. At a funeral, I made eye contact with him and he looked away. At a bar, I avoided him and left as soon as possible. I don't know how much this has affected me, probably more than I know or know how to confront. Uh, He's never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser, we were friendly. Darkest thoughts, living out a version of how to lose a guy in 10 days, where I see how fast I can alienate my girlfriend and friends and family so that I won't feel... So they won't feel anything when I kill myself. I think about suicide a lot, but knowing how those close to me would feel after is enough to make me not act on the thoughts. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if if there is some correlation to between not dealing with the sexual abuse and um, feeling the negative thoughts that you're feeling. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a therapist, but I did make. Uh, I did make waffles, and uh, Judd Nelson was in the movie, which I think has to count for something. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have sexual fantasies. For a long time, the most fantastical thing I could imagine happening to me was sex—just sex, like on a bed with a lady. I wish I was confident enough in my sexuality to have more interesting fantasies. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had an answer to the last question. Um, Oh, the the previous question he didn't answer, which was, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I had an answer for the last question. I wish I had something to say. wish I had strong feelings that were not negative. wish I was creative or could find a way to channel any creativity I may have. wish I wasn't ashamed. Have you shared these things with others? Bits and neutered pieces. Some with therapists, but those relationships didn't last long. Some with my girlfriend, who I've been very open with, but I feel like I have to tone it down because the only thing worse than how I feel is the fact that I am doing very little to solve the problems. How do you feel after writing these things down? Still foggy and confused. Anxious about sharing. Ashamed. But I felt that way before. And now I'm nervous that if Paul reads this, he will judge me for not buying that book on shame he likes to hawk. I feel like I was too self-centered and used the word I too much on this survey about me. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I uh, wish I had any tips. Um... Buddy, I just want to give you a hug, man. I just want to give you a hug. You sound like such a sweet man. And you're in such a prison in your head right now, but you don't have to stay there forever. I know it's terrifying opening up and asking for help, but it's better than the alternative, which is just suffering in silence. So sending you some love. This uh, is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself cancerous, not really. 
and about her depression. She writes, undiagnosed, paralyzing. I don't walk to my bathroom. I pee in a bag. Uh, other compulsive behaviors, faking cancer, a lot. A snapshot from her life. I quit a job I loved because my fake cancer required it. I shaved my head daily, glued tubes from the hardware store to my body to look convincing, got fake rides to the hospital, and after three years, finally, quote, miraculously healed. I lost my damn mind. You know, that that, that doesn't surprise me that 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 would happen because a a really common um, fantasy that people have, and I've had it before too, is that I would get sick with something so that people could take care of me and I wouldn't have to deal with daily life. I'd just be in a bag, uh, in a bed, and I would get attention and sympathy. Um, but it sounds like that what you did is in the past, and. Um, that's good, but thank you for sharing that. Um, this is a same survey filled out by. This is her name is. Despite taking three benzos, chewing gum, and having the Tom Hanks, uh, and having the Tom Hanks every movie in seven seven minutes clip pulled up on my phone, I am still rendered a sobbing mess. When I get a pelvic exam done, my rapist ruined me. Um, and. I just I wanted to read this um, snapshot of um, her being a victim, and I suppose I want to read it because it's just so um, it's like something out of a lifetime movie, and it it. I'm just going to read it. Um, you know what? I'm actually I'm going to I'm going to hold back some of the details on it cuz um I invited my mom's friend over during summer vacation. I viewed him as a brother figure at the time, so this was not out of the ordinary. He came inside, pushed me on the couch, and choked me with one hand while uh he hiked my dress up with the other. Um and basically he was cutting her wind off and and uh, raping her. And then um, I stared at him frozen. He sniffed. Uh, when he finished, uh, he scrambled off me like I was diseased. I stared at him frozen. He sniffed, scratched his chin, and zipped up his pants. Then he said, don't bother telling anyone about that. They won't believe you or care. When he left, I immediately called my mom to tell her what happened. Her response was, you have a problem keeping your legs crossed. He could tell you were easy. I was 17. I wouldn't talk about it again until I was 28. I'm 29 now. And I remember why I wanted to read this. Um, was to high-five you for talking about this. That you just finally opened up last year and you sat with this for, for 10 years. 11 years. And the betrayal by your mother is just, you know, people often say that when they go to a parent and they tell them what happened and the parent shames them, that it's oftentimes hurts even more than the assault. And um, 
If you haven't yet contacted the Rape and Incest National Network, I, I highly recommend it because you could find some great resources to, to help you um, heal. But um, sending you some love. And um, your mom is a sick, sick person. I mean, obviously, the guy that did that as well. But um, I just. It's just baffling to me. It's just baffling to me. Um, this is a. I'm just having trouble pulling out of that last one. It's just so it's so heavy. And I withheld some of the some of the details as well. Um, this is from the body shame survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, bigger and blacker. And she writes uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, I like finally getting to see what my natural hair looks like and gaining muscle. These things are connected. Growing up, my mother, who's lighter skinned than me with straighter hair, would insist on taking me to get my hair chemically straightened. This is a time-consuming process. Six hours at a salon every couple of weeks. While black hairstylists often tell you that straightening your hair makes it, quote, easier to manage, that is a lie. 99% of my pictures from when I had straightened hair, it was up in a ponytail or a bun. You can't wash it yourself and it dries out really quickly. So working out and getting sweaty was out of the question. For years, I weighed about 95 pounds, excuse me, with zero muscle tone. In combination with the straight hair, it made me look more ethnically ambiguous than I am. My hypercritical, self-hating black parents loved it. With a rectilinear silhouette and long hair, I fit closer to the European-American beauty standard. Never get bigger and never cut your hair were the only unambiguous, non-backhanded compliments that they gave me. The fact that I loved to read was undermined by the fact that I wasn't good at math. But the hair and size? Perfect. Fast forward to me at 25, moving to Britain for grad school. Without telling my mother in advance, I chopped my hair off. She was livid and ignorant, but I was delighted. I could finally go to the gym. I can even swim. I don't need to stay inside when it rains for fear of frizz. At 29, I can now squat my own weight, and that weight is much more than 95 pounds. My parents hate it. No more long European hair. No more stick-thin body. Despite the fact that I'm healthier than before and I'm still petite, I can tell that they hate the fact that I look blacker. I look like who I am, which makes me wonder, if you didn't want black kids, why did you have me? While that depresses the shit out of me, I'm so glad that the natural hair movement exists. It saved my life and made me a lot stronger. P.S. Once I'm able, I'm going non-contact with them. I look forward to it. Uh, and... Not that my opinion matters, but I love a big natural. Love it. I think it's incredibly sexy. This is Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself prob problematically mediocre. She's uh, got a bad staple here. She's bisexual. She's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, my mom threatened to kill herself a lot when we were kids. Not sure if she's been emotionally abused. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable the, the, the way that we will minimize. Unbelievable. 
my mom threatened to kill herself a lot when we were kids, and once or twice when we pissed her off, she would leave for a day or two and not tell us where she was going or when she would be back. I was always scared she would never come back. She was a single mom, and we didn't have other family. She also told us we were ungrateful, unappreciative, and that we weren't like other kids. We were rude and abusive to her. I'm still not sure if that's true or not. Even today, when she is demonstrably wrong or makes a mistake, she cannot apologize. I feel like I spent my whole childhood apologizing and groveling to her because saying only sorry was not enough. Wow, she sounds like an incredible narcissist. Incredible narcissist. Any positive experiences? Despite everything, she fought really hard to get us all a good education, even when it meant she financially suffered because of it. We never really had any money, but still went to all the best schools and colleges, but she never let us forget it was all her doing. Well, to me, you know, that if you have to remind somebody, you know, if you wave that in their face, then you didn't sacrifice. In my opinion, you did that to look good, but that's just my opinion. Um, but I want to punch your mom in the fucking face right now. Your darkest thoughts. Sometimes I wish I could run away from everything, change my name, and start a new life, one that I haven't fucked up yet. I also fantasize about dying a heroic death because then people will be less sad than if I just killed myself. Darkest secrets. Sometimes when I eat too much, I purge, and sometimes I go days without eating. I don't think it's gotten to the stage where it's unhealthy, as I am still in the normal weight range for my height. I want to keep going, though, because I can't be beautiful. Because if I can't be beautiful, I need to be skinny. Uh, it is not healthy to go for days without eating. It is not. It is not good. That is incredibly unhealthy. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sometimes I fantasize about being dominated in a sexual situation. Nothing with pain and nothing non-consensual. I just like the idea of trusting someone to take charge of me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my brother and sister how depressed I am. They know I'm depressed and on medication, but they don't know how bad it is, how badly I want to kill myself, and how often I think about it and plan it. Please go talk to them. Please go talk to them and please go talk to a professional because if you are planning it, that is the last stage. That is the biggest, biggest flag. That's something that when I would talk to my therapist about being, you know, thinking about suicide all the time, my therapist would always say, have you made any plans? So that's a big warning sign and um, depression can be managed. It can be managed. It's not always easy or simple, but... Um, let your brother and sister love you. Let them let him in on what's going on with you. And that can also sometimes help in fighting, um, you know, whatever mood disorder. You know, it's certainly having people support. You can't cure uh, a mood disorder, but it can help lighten the load sometimes. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for mutual love and desire. I feel ugly all the time, and all I want is for someone to be turned on by me and me turned on by them, too. I wish for a companion I can also trust, someone who, quote, knows me. Have you shared these things with others? I have tried to, but I think people think I'm being childish because I am so lonely. It's more than just wanting a boyfriend or girlfriend. I ache to love and be loved by someone and understand and be understood by someone. Um, that is not being childish. That is not being childish. Um, 
How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad because I highly doubt I will ever find someone like that. I am so fucking tired of being lonely. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just that I understand the pain of it and it's nothing trivial. Loneliness can pervade your thoughts better than any other negative feeling, I think. Even when you're trying to escape from your thoughts, it sneaks in. Thank you for sharing that. And I really, really hope you open up to somebody because you deserve to. And all those things that you're dreaming about can happen. They can happen in your life. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Midnight Marauder. And what do you like or dislike about your body? He writes, I hate how fat I am. I'm a 24-year-old virgin who's ashamed of his penis, and I don't feel attractive in the slightest. I love that I am strong. Even though I don't exercise much currently, from years of playing football and powerlifting, I still have a lot of strength. It makes me feel powerful. Thank you for that. I always like when somebody has parts of the body survey that they like about themselves. Um, This is from the being hospitalized survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself capsized. And uh, she writes, I tried to commit suicide by drinking a bottle of Windex. That didn't work. So I drank a bottle of Tylenol and a bottle of aspirin uh, that almost did the trick. Um, Describe your experience. My father is a doctor. I was taken to the hospital he worked at. My dad's a great person, so naturally everyone from the other docs to the janitors knew him, so they all knew me. A nurse told me in the ER that I was doing a terrible thing to my poor parents. In that moment, I wish the pills had worked. Actually, in that moment, I wish that fucking nurse had taken the pills. What a, what a horrible, horrible thing to say. God, the ignorance people have. The ignorance that people have about mental illness is fucking astounding. (sighs) After I left the ICU, my dad wheeled me into the locked psych ward himself. I've never felt so disgusting. I cried the whole way. It felt like everyone in the hospital was watching this great man wheel his psycho daughter into the nuthouse. He told me later he did that to show me and everyone else he wasn't ashamed that I had depression. He would have done the same thing if I had cancer. The hospital stay helped a lot. Obviously, it wasn't a cure-all. I'll be walking the mental illness road for the rest of my life, but the hospital stay did a lot for me and my family. And that, to me, is a happy moment. That beautiful moment of your dad wheeling you and not being ashamed and saying that he would have done the same thing if you had had cancer. I mean, that is a guy that understands and thank God you have him in your life. And um, fuck that nurse. You know, I've actually, I don't know if I've ever had a bad experience with a nurse. I've always had, I was very fortunate in all the kind of traumatic shit that I had to deal with as a kid in hospital stays and stuff. Some of my most positive experiences were, were with nurses. Um... This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Primrose, and she is straight in her 40s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. 
my paternal grandfather and my father were my abusers for most of my youth. The memories have taken years to come to the surface for me. I realized in my 20s that my cousins also suffered at the hands of my grandfather. It's an ongoing issue that causes anger and depression in my life. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, wow, this is so complicated and long and probably boring. I think the emotional abuse I suffered at the hands of my mother was more damaging than the physical and sexual abuse I suffered from my father and his father. My mother saying things like she loves me, um, she has to, oh, because, there's a couple letters left out. Uh, saying things like she loves me because she has to but doesn't like me. I was about six when that one started. She would have me lie to waitresses about losing money so we could eat for free or bus drivers for the same reason. I would ride the bus with her while she would deal coke. Uh, I was her lookout as early as first grade. The list goes on. I will take an angry, drunk father over not knowing what I would get with my mom. Any positive experiences with the abusers? She just writes yes and doesn't elaborate. Darkest thoughts. I'm a bit numbed out on Zoloft these days, but when I had postpartum, I would be scared to be in the kitchen as I pictured me stabbing myself over and over. Darkest secrets. Being homeless at times, having epilepsy as a child, lying about my early life, which I still do on occasion. Uh... And she has no sexual fantasies. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? I hate you, Mom. I hate you for lying to me. I hate you for ignoring my bladder infections and bloody underwear. I hate you for crying about your father kissing you on the lips as I was forced to be with my grandfather. I hate you for you blaming your childhood on your lack of care for me. What, if anything, do you wish for? Healing, self-love, and to not repeat patterns. Have you shared these things with others? Bits and pieces. Okay, I guess. I mean, it just sucks. Um, and I hate dwelling in the past. How do you feel after writing these things down? Angry and clear. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm sorry you had to go through that. You didn't deserve it. Thank you for sharing that. My mom also did that. I, I haven't really updated you on... Um, I don't really feel like doing it right now, but um, maybe in the next couple of weeks or so, I'll give you some updates. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Stacy, and she writes about her depression, trying to catch up to someone you can't even see because the fog is so thick. About her anxiety, my limbs are literally going to shake themselves off my body. Snapshot from her life, going to my therapist to talk about my anxiety is when I am the most anxious. That's a great one. Thank you for that. Uh, this is an email that I got from uh, Adubni Dubnikova. And uh, they write, uh, Payment of $3 million from Julie Leach Foundation to you. Kindly contact the Julie Leach Foundation via email only um, for details on why you are receiving this message. Um, I'll be honest. I would love $3 million but I hate people, uh, and I'm speaking to you, Adubne Dubnikova. I hate people whose first name is also in their last name. I never supported Boutros, Boutros Ghali, and I refuse to vote for Chris Christie. And while I, again, $3 million would be great, I cannot approve of your parents' child naming process. This is from the What Has Helped You survey. 
And this is filled out by Chatterbox. And she is uh, suffers from anxiety, depression, and dermatillomania. What helps you deal with it? I find video games help me escape my anxiety and keep my hands busy. Since my surge of anxiety and depression earlier this year, I've been playing Minecraft incessantly. I love being in the open world and building my own little safe house away from real life and making everything just the way I want it. I also play mindless games like 2048 and agar.io while listening to podcasts to numb out after a stressful event. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? I love when my friends who have gone through things like this acknowledge how hard it is and encourage me to cut myself some slack. I find lots of other university students say they are stressed, but I have had that regular stress and now I have this new and much more difficult problem. Uh, When my experienced friends reach out for a chat or coffee and they tell me how shitty they felt in their dark days, it makes me feel more sane and like I am not just being a whiny baby. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man, college is such a pressure cooker, and especially grad school. Let's, Let's be honest, any type of school. Let's be honest, anybody sharing a room with you Anybody talking to you is a pressure cooker. <laughs> let's be let's be honest. Eye contact is a pressure cooker. This is from the uh, young male abused by older female survey, and I wanted to read this one because it was it's really uh, for those of you that listened to the episode last week, um, where it was an older male had um, had sex with a legal. Um, but much younger female, this one felt to me like like the reverse. And so I just kind of wanted to, uh, to read this one. And he calls himself, uh, it doesn't seem like this should feel so traumatic. And let's see, how old is he? He's uh, straight and he's in his 40s. And uh, obviously this happened a while ago. He writes, when I was 19 or 20, some sexual stuff happened with my father's girlfriend who was in her early 40s. I had moved in with the two of them when I was severely depressed and living with my mother was becoming untenable. My father moved away temporarily shortly after I moved in to work abroad for a year. I was suicidally depressed, painfully shy, and a virgin. I have trouble remembering details, but it was mostly kissing and petting with clothes on or some type of Uh, Oh, for some time, maybe a couple of weeks. We both knew it was wrong, and she would frequently say that we shouldn't be doing this, but wouldn't stop. It ended up culminating in an episode where we ended up in her bed with her naked, and she got off on my hand. It was the first time I had ever touched a vagina. Immediately after she came, at least I think she did, she told me I had to get out. I remember feeling her wetness still on my hand when it hit the cold winter air. Did you tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Do you believe it had any effect on you? I told my mother some version of what happened at the time, but did not really talk about it. I also must have told my current therapist because I remember him telling me that I needed to get away from the situation. I didn't talk about it and tried to forget about it for the last 20 plus years. Uh, Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Mostly intense shame. I put seduced on the survey, but in retrospect, I feel manipulated and used. I have trouble justifying these feelings to myself, though, because I was not a child and I participated and part of me must have wanted it. 
Do you feel any damage was done? It was definitely not innocent or natural. I feel damaged by it. I am terrified about being intimate with another person, and I have repressed any sexuality apart from masturbating to pornography for my entire life. And, um, you know, I wanted to, to read the one from last week and the one this week to just emphasize the thing that, that we say all the time, which is separate whether something is illegal or not from how it made you feel. You know, take the prosecutability of something off the table and, and just examine how it made you feel because this isn't about blaming the other person when you're healing. You know, there may come a time to, to deal with that, but for now, I think the most important thing is to get in touch with what it is that you're feeling. And um, I think it might also help you um, uh, dealing with the uh, performance anxiety and fear of intimacy. You know, that's a it's a really common side effect of um, experiencing um, sexual trauma, which I would I would call this. You know, I would call this that. And our society is incredibly ignorant about understanding how males uh, can become sexually traumatized. Um, this is a happy moments survey filled out by bioluminescent and, uh, she writes, I understand finances are limited, but I'd love to see you go abroad. Um, oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, her happy moment first. Uh, I like to walk by the sea at dusk so I can avoid being seen by other human beings. I started at dusk and by the time I was halfway along the promenade, the stars were out and the moon was rising. I sat on one of the benches and watched. The sea was deep blue and looked like crumpled aluminum foil in the, mid in the moonlight. The beach was artificial and full of round stones, so every time the water ebbed, the stones would rattle quietly. I sat there and listened for a while. For once, I could just exist outside. I could just exist outside without sucking in my stomach. That's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture that you painted. I love when you guys do that. Just love it. And then any comments to make the podcast better. I understand finances are limited, but I'd love to see you go abroad and or bring guests in more often. Maybe ask other listeners how they would feel about a Kickstarter or something. Contributors get, could get a picture of Herbert's butt signed, thanks for the support, asshole. Now go fuck yourself. I will have to ask Herbert's butthole. I don't know how he would feel about it but I will run it by him. Uh, this is an awful moment, and this was filled out by, oh, I think we read one of our surveys uh, earlier in the show, Tristus. And um, I'm just going to fast forward to, to uh, part of this and just set it up. She had she had, um, she had, had a stillborn uh, baby, and she was, uh, and I'll fast forward to the to the uh, service. So on the day of um, on the day of uh, the visitation and funeral, I went in early to see and hold him one last time. Oh my God, that's so heartbreaking. I think I stayed in the same chair the whole night. I had someone tell me it was okay to cry, and that was when I realized the whole affair had been a blur. But somewhere in the thick of all the handshaking and comments of uh, 
in comments of thanks, my phone began to loudly ring. I was instantly furious that someone would call me right fucking now of all times and upset that I was so unable to function that turning off my ringer had been beyond me. Everyone in the room was looking around as if they were asking what insensitive asshole left their phone on. My mom, who was sitting beside me, grabbed the phone from my purse and dashed out of the room as I continued to be avoided by every uncomfortable person, uh, thankful that they weren't me. After maybe two minutes, she came back with a fucking smile on her face. My first thought was, what the hell? She sits down and proceeds to tell me, you'll never believe who that was. I answer the phone, and the woman on the other end asks, I'm just wondering how the service is going. My my mom responds, it hasn't actually uh, begun yet, but will in a few minutes. The lady responds, confused, what service hasn't started? My mom asks, what do you mean? The funeral service for the baby, of course. Aren't you one of Rachel's friends from out of town? Because I can go get her. There's still a few minutes left. There was a pause before the woman responds, Ma'am, I'm calling from Sprint. I just wanted to know how the phone service was going. And that dark piece of chocolate is how we are ending the episode. <laughs> oh, that is a hall of fame. And she says, uh, when she when she wrote this, she, she says uh, that this is like the perfect place to share it because when she tries to share the story with other people, because she does find it funny, um, they just, none of them can, can laugh. But uh, we do. We enjoy that kind of shit or maybe i should just speak for myself but i hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with kevin um i know i got a lot of a lot of insight into um what that must be like talking to people when they're in that in that place and thank you for all your surveys and all your support and um if you're out there and you're feeling stuck i hope that this last uh, 119 minutes has um, reminded you that you are not alone and help is available. It's out there. Um, You just got to take that frightening first step of saying, can you please help me? I don't know how to do this. And um, it saved my life. I'm glad I did. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.